Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. The atonement and the theology of the, the atonement has become a problematic category in contemporary theology because of different models of atonement that have sprung up. And it seems to presume that the forgiveness of sins requires, necessitates the suffering of the sinner or the person who represents the sinner. In its most severe expression, God the Father sends his son to death on the cross in order to satisfy the infinite punishment that justice demands. We talked to Dr. Gary Anderson about this. He has a a brilliant work published in the Church Life Journal called How to Read the Old Testament Theologically, The Case of the Atonement. Dr. Anderson is the Hesburgh Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, and his many books include The Award-Winning Sin, A History, Christian Doctrine, and the Old Testament. Gary, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. So, uh, but I... I, I loved everything I read in this article. It, it, it's very beautifully done, and it's pretty succinct. You packed a lot into a very short article. Uh, and I, I want to ask you, what prompted you to want to explore a theology of atonement utilizing Old Testament typology? Well, the article, you know, comes from a book that I've just finished on the subject of the tabernacle narrative in the Old Testament, that is, uh, beginning in Exodus 25, when Moses receives the instructions for how to build the tabernacle shrine, mm-hmm. uh, which includes, of course, the building and then the altar. And the altar, of course, is related to sacrificial service, and sacrificial service, of course, then leads to the subject of the atonement. And um, what struck me as I was working through the Old Testament material is that um, within the tabernacle narrative, though, uh, sacrifice certainly can be used for the purposes of sin, of paying the price for sin. Um, that's not its primary purpose. That's not the reason why sacrifice itself begins as a institution in ancient Israel. What I try to show in that book is that sacrifice ultimately is about offering one's total self to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, of course, correlates very nicely with uh, the place really, of the Eucharistic sacrifice uh, within the liturgy of the Church, which, of course, is about, in part, the atonement of sins, uh, but probably, primarily, it's a a rite that celebrates Christ's total offering to Mm -hmm. God the Father, a sacrifice that pulls us uh, into its action, so that we, too, in the liturgy of the Mass, offer ourselves, right? Um, and that offering, of course, has, you know, is atoning, but it has a value beyond that of atonement. It's our self-offering of ourselves to God, right? and um, that's really how the whole thing began. And well, first of all, I, I wish this book had been around months early. I'm loving everything I've, I've been reading, and I, I drew from a lot of the sources that you cited in this article for my own dissertation. This this happens to be my area of research as well. So uh, th- there's a certain kind of affination for the topic. Uh, I, I do want to, be, before we dive into the article proper, I do want to talk about the very notion of atonement that you mentioned. Uh, you've got this model of penal substitution, this the substitution of the penalty. You know, God heaped our guilt upon Christ. I've even heard Christian Catholic speakers say when he hung on the cross, God heaped all of our sin upon him and turned his back on him because he couldn't stand to look at him. And 
it juxtaposed to that is the classical Catholic language, the language of the church, that of this kind of vicarious atonement. You and I in baptism are joined to the sufferings of Christ. We are joined to the sacrifice of Christ. And so in a very real way, we work out our own salvation because we are joined to Jesus's finished work on the cross. So just kind of shed more light on that for us. Yes, I think, well, penal substitution, I think itself can be understood in a salutary way and affirmed by Catholics, but it Mm -hmm. also, of course, can be expressed in a way that's horrific, and I think most people would run from. And uh, that's how my article begins, and that's, of course, the way in which you began with your description of it, this sense that somehow God the Father is demanding Mm -hmm. of um, punishment on the basis of sin, as though he's, as it were, extracting his pound of flesh. He's a kind of small-minded you know, bookkeeper in heaven and uh, is, you know, somehow delighted at making sure people suffer from what what they've done wrong. That, of course, gets everything uh, backwards. Right. Uh, Suffering can be a part of atonement, but the only way in which I think it can function in a salutary and sanctifying way within Christian theology is if the suffering is ordered to love. (laughs) That's the Mm -hmm. key element. Right. So you think of, for example, um, uh, Maximilian Kolbe, for example, stepping in and suffering in the place of uh, other families during the Holocaust in Europe and the Second World War. Um, he is, in, you know, paying the price of, you know, whatever, what, what those people are supposedly owe to their, um, you know, in the, in the prison camps, but he's doing such out of love, right? right. He wants to... Uh, you know, to bear the, you know, what's going to be exacted on them uh, as a way of freeing them. And um, that's that's the element that's important. However we want to tell the story of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his bearing uh, the pain of our sin, the narrative has to be framed in such a way that we see that the primary driving force is love, right. not vindictiveness. That's right. Devoid of the narrative of God as a father of covenant love, all we can see is petty, vindictive, justice-seeking that that desires nothing more than, than the true, deep, intimate suffering of the sinner for the sake of uh, an alleviation of the debt. And that, that's, a caricat- that's a caricaturization of, of the Christian narrative in, in its truest sense. And you highlight that. You, know, you talk about how that's an unnuanced approach to the salutary theology of the atonement. Right. So, and actually, you know, I only discovered this after I finished the book, and it's not in the article itself, but much of what I argue there correlates very nicely with a very important, and at least in some circles, very well-known 19th century German theologian by the name of Matthias Schaben. That's right. Um, who argued with respect to Christ's sacrifice, and here he's thinking uh, also of its liturgical expression in the Eucharist, uh, has as its primary driving force what he calls a latroithic action, from a mm. Greek word latria, of service, of self-donation to God, that that's the primary action within the Eucharistic sacrifice, within Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. If you want a biblical reference here, I think Philippians 2 is the place to turn, uh, and it's that primary, you know, latroithic dimension 
that kind of paradoxically yields uh, its, you know, atonement um, effects so that in donating oneself wholly to God, uh, God, you know, in reaction to that self-donation, overlooks, you know, the sins uh, of the people so affected. And so uh, Shaban by no means denies that Christ suffers on behalf or mm. for the forgiveness of our sins, uh, but that forgiveness element is riding behind, we might want to say, the primary force of Christ's sacrifice, right. which is his total gift to God, his Father. That's right. And Aquinas is pretty clear about this, too, that one drop of Christ's bloodshed would have been more than sufficient to save the world, what is it, like an infinite times over. The, the whole object right. is Christ wanted to make of himself a complete and total gift both to the Father and to us for the for, for the bridging of this covenant gap. So you go on to uh, quote Orthodox theologian Andrew Louth, and and you're, you're quoting Louth as he exegetes on Athanasius' On the Incarnation, paragraph 54. So tell us about that. So <laughs> Louth, I mean, like, he's something of a straw man in the article, which is maybe a little bit unfortunate, because Louth is actually a very serious thinker and worth reading, but he's often adopted by um, especially... Um, you know, uh, Protestant thinkers who are very much opposed to the penal substitution model and trot it out as an example of understanding Christ for w- in, in a way in which sacrifice has uh, no value or no purpose. Mm. And um, uh, so for Louth, um, he espouses this in the context of the Eastern Church's notion of deification, that right. uh, Christ is incarnate, in order to, you know, render us, make us like God as well. And, you know, in his reading, the Incarnation then uh, would have taken place, would have had value even apart from Adam's sin, uh, a a viewpoint that, of course, is espoused by Duns Scotus as well on the Catholic side of the equation. And what I try to show in my article is, though, you know, I, I love the notion of deification, and I think that that element of the nation is intelligible apart from Adam's sacrifice. There I agree with Louth, but I think Louth errs uh, in not seeing sacrifice as built into God's program from creation from the very beginning, but uh, sacrifice understood there not as necessarily atoning, but sacrifice as an action uh, that bespeaks our total Mm self-offering back to God. And that element, I think, Louth uh, was blind to right. and didn't see that as basic to uh, the Old Testament framework that informs the new, and that's what I tried to show in the article. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, Catechism 616 stands on the, your side, you know, the the fundamental side of the intellectual tradition. It is, it, it's this love to the end that confers Christ's sacrifice, its value. It's redemptive, it's reparative, but it's also an atonement and satisfaction sacrifice. Devoid of that, it would be difficult for us to make this proper argument. So you then go on to develop this argument in the line of considering the tamit ha'olat sacrifices. So tell us what the tamit sacrifices are first, and then why it's necessary for us to understand that they are not rites of atonement. So the tamid sacrifice, which is simply a Hebrew word for regular, mm-hmm. it's the regular sacrifice, the sacrifice that occurred 
every morning and every evening in the temple is the, you know, the basic foundational sacrifice, we might want to say, of the ancient Israelite temple. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the subject, or when we're looking at the tabernacle narrative, for example, when it talks about the founding sacrificial action, which we read about in chapter 29 of the book of Exodus, uh, what it has in mind is the tamid sacrifice, uh, not one of the atoning sacrifices that one can find later in the book of Leviticus. Dr. Anderson, we've just hit a break, but uh, we're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the break, talking with Dr. Gary A. Anderson, Hesburgh Professor of Theology at University of Notre Dame, about his brilliant article, How to Read the Old Testament Theologically, The Case of the Atonement. Stay tuned. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Thank you for staying with us. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. We're talking with Dr. Gary Anderson of Notre Dame University about his brilliant article entitled How to Read the Old Testament Theologically, the Case of the Atonement. So, uh, Gary, we were talking earlier about the Tamid sacrifices, and I'm sorry we had to get cut off because of the break, so let's pick up right there. Why Continue telling us what the Tamid sacrifices are, how they bookend all of the sacrifices that take place in the liturgical day, and why are they not considered atonement rites? Right, so uh, in terms of their centrality, I'll go back to uh, what I had said previously, they appear for the first time in Exodus 29, which is the story uh, that documents the very first sacrifices that are to be offered uh, by Moses and Aaron once the altar has been inaugurated. And the sacrifice that they are to offer is the tamid, uh, which is not an atoning rite, and it's that sacrifice that takes place morning and evening and serves as the foundation, we might want to say, for all of Israel's sacrifice. We know this from later biblical books. Daniel would be a good mm-hmm. example uh, when the temple is desecrated and sacrifice ends, uh, they don't single out the end of atoning sacrifices. They single out the ending of the tamid rite that mm-hmm. stands in for the entire sacrificial service. So uh, the tamid rite, as I try to show within the article, both according to traditional Jewish and Christian readings, harkens back to the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac back in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis which I describe as a self-donation, and uh, it's not an atonement rite, though that sacrifice becomes or can serve as an argument by Moses uh, for the forgiveness of sins of the people of Israel, simply because it's such a stupendous deed uh, that generates, at least according to the theological logic of the Old Testament, uh, such an enormous set of merits uh, that God can overlook the cost of Israel's sin by attending to uh, the meritorious actions of Abraham and Isaac. And, and that's, that's, that's the Old Testament, you know, I want to say, expression of this idea. Of course, it deeply informs the way in which Christ's sacrifice is understood uh, in the um, early Church and in the Eucharist as well, right. uh, that it generates an infinite value of merit that serves to cover all human sins. So it's definitely atoning, but the sacrifice has a value, integrity, we might want to say, and purpose 
uh, outside of an atonement framework. Right. And you go so far as to quote, quote Clawins on this, you know, that the typical understanding of the way the Tamit and grave sin are related is he believes backwards. So explain that dynamic, because it's a pretty interesting dynamic to talk about the Akedah after. Right. So people normally think with respect to Old Testament sacrifice uh, that the primary purpose is that of uh, atonement, but uh, Clawans says we need to reverse that with respect to uh, the Tamid, that the Tamid has an independent value outside of atonement, and it's human sin uh, that um, undoes the, mm-hmm. you know, the utility, value, and integrity of the Tamid sacrifice, right. rather than the Tamid sacrifice undoing the cost of sin. So it kind of reverses, we might want to say, our um, uh, directional vector. Right, right, which is a very crucial perspective to hold because then you start talking about the merit of the Tamid as being drawn from the Akedah event, which which was one of the main things I discovered in my own research. And Levinson fleshes this out quite a bit in The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. So t- uh, tell us about that. Tell us about how the merits of the Akedah transcend the chronological event. No, that's exactly right. So what happens... Um, well, we would need to look at a couple of things. When Moses uh, is interceding on behalf of Israel after they've committed the sin of the golden calf, mm-hmm. uh, God initially, at least according to that story, is willing to um, execute a capital price as a result of this horrendous sin. In other words, uh, to condemn all of Israel to death, Moses, uh, alert to that possibility, steps into the breach and uh, intercedes for Israel successfully, Uh, But his most important argument that really carries the day is that he asks God to remember uh, to Israel's credit uh, Mm -hmm. the promise uh, that he made to the patriarchs, which is an allusion, of course, back to the formation of that promise on the basis of Abraham and Isaac's Mm -hmm. deed. So we can see already in Exodus the kind of important uh, we might want to say, atonement function right. of that rite. But then what happens in subsequent you know, Jewish exegesis and Christian exegesis is that as the Tamid sacrifice is offered, as God sees that sacrifice, he remembers, in scare quotes, uh, the meritorious actions of mm-hmm. Abraham and Isaac, and uh, as a result, forgives the sins of Israel, just as in the Eucharist, God considers or remembers, again in scare quotes, uh, the merits won by Christ on his cross, on the right. cross, and then uh, we are the beneficiaries of those merits. Now, in your article, you also, and you even mentioned this earlier, you, like me and Levinson, we, we, we hold that the Akedah event was more the self-offering of the, well, it was as much the yeah. self-offering of the son as it was the, the willing sacrifice of the father. And uh, many right. people, a narrative can be construed that Isaac was an unwilling participant, but the tradition seems to demonstrate that we have reason to believe Isaac was a willing participant. So tell us about that. So that's a complex uh, question. I suppose if we were looking, all we had was the book, you know, of Genesis. We, at least I would argue, we probably would downplay uh, Isaac's agency here. In fact, in the stories in Genesis in general, Isaac's a character 
uh, that things happen to him rather than he's a character who makes things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But as the, you know, the story begins to wind its way through the Jewish tradition, subsequent interpreters, one of the things that they notice, and it's not a trivial point, is that uh, Isaac, at least according to the chronology of Genesis, the book of Genesis, would most likely have been a middle-aged man Mm. uh, when that story took place. So uh, Jewish interpreters then obviously, you know, came to the conclusion that Abraham is in, he's a, you know, over over 100 years old, uh, Isaac is a middle-aged man, the only way in which Isaac could ever be tied on that altar is if he himself was uh, a willing participant in that action. Right. And um, that's the way in which the story then will unfold, certainly, uh, in Jewish sources, so that in some, in some materials, Isaac actually becomes the primary focus. But I think in terms of self-offering, and here's why I really like Levinson's book, um, I think whether we focus on Abraham's role or Isaac's role or both roles, we come to the same end point. Right, exactly. We do come to the same endpoint because there's real typological fittingness to compare the events pertaining to the Akedah and, as you mentioned earlier, Jesus' own uh, offering of himself as a selfless gift of love. So uh, you go on with the conversation drawing that exact parallel. So tell us more about that. So... Um you know that I can remember when I was uh, working on a book about the you know uh, interpretation of Adam and Eve. I was in the um, at Princeton. They have a fantastic archive of the history of Christian art up until the High Middle Ages. And uh, one afternoon, I was a little bit tired from my research, and I decided just to go through the card catalog back in the day in which there were such things <laughs> uh, and uh, look up you know, how many references there were in early Christian art to the uh, sacrifice of Isaac. And uh, much to my surprise, when I looked it up in that card catalog, a whole card file uh, was dedicated simply to uh, that chapter in the book of Genesis, which for me was very revealing. You could just see Mm. how deeply imprinted within, you know, the Christian exegetical, that is, interpretive mind, uh, that story was. It just informed everything. And so, you know, artists uh, of every sort uh, went to that chapter. Why did they go to that chapter? They went to that chapter because they thought it was a typological pointer Mm -hmm. uh, to to Christ, to the crucifixion. Right. So, but... And, and you highlight all of this, uh, the, the fact that the son carries the wood of his own sacrifice. Uh, and you, you talk in pretty great detail about the notion of the Akedah being a striking figural relationship between Christ and the cross and the Eucharistic sacrifice. So, you know, help, help us draw that line. So, you know, however we wish to understand it, if we take Abraham's perspective or Isaac's perspective, what happens in the story of the Akedah is it's, it's a story about uh, the to- their total offering of mm-hmm. their total selves, either Abraham giving up what's most valuable to him, uh, which is at this point his only son, uh, Ishmael has been sent away, his whole future there he seems to be sacrificing, or if we take it from Isaac's perspective, of course, uh, his whole life. And um, I think the import- one of the important things to see here is that that action, which is very similar to the way in which uh, Christ's sacrifice is going to be described in 
the second chapter of Philippians as well. Mm. Uh, it's the same kind of sacrificial motion, uh, again, an action that's good in itself. It does, Philippians 2 has nothing about atonement in it. It's all about Christ's obedience to his Father, right. and giving up his life, uh, and uh, the uh, great name that uh, God the Father bestowed upon him mm -hmm. as a result of that stupendous uh, sacrifice. All of that, of course, is uh, very nicely um, foreshadowed, we might want to say, in the Akedah. That's right. And um, as I mentioned, it doesn't require atonement, but uh, paradoxically, it becomes the sacrifice that functions beautifully mm -hmm. uh, when atonement is necessary. And as Philippians 2 would highlight, if one is reading that in continuity with the entire Old Testament tradition, especially the Akedah, and we're going to see that Christ's sacrifice and resurrection becomes the true typological fulfillment of the covenant promises made to Abraham as a result of the Akedah. That's true. And I mean, actually, that's interesting. And I, I, don't, I don't think I made this explicit in my article, but I certainly could have. Um, is that Abraham establishes uh, paradoxically his eternal name through that action, mm -hmm. uh, because by giving up his son, he actually gets the son back. The son right. is ready for marriage and to have offspring. And in the Old Testament, that was the ideal way to establish a great name. Mm -hmm. uh, and Abraham establishes his great name by giving up, which uh, the source, uh, the only source, it would seem, uh, for that great name. But that's the same thing that happens in Philippians 2. Christ's ignominious death on the cross seems to be uh, the end for him, but it's not, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, on Easter, he's raised by his divine Father, and uh, as Philippians 2 says, he's going to be a granted a name that's above every name. That's right. Uh, so it's by being willing to uh, sacrifice, lose that name, that somehow the name ultimately is bestowed upon him. And that's exactly what happens in the Akedah. Right, exactly, exactly. And God gave him a name which is above all names, raised him high, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, because in there you have the implicit fulfillment of the promise of a great nation as well. Because all the nations now acknowledge this one heir of Abraham as their true Lord. That's that's very true, but I, and also behind everything that you've just said is we're, we're really... Um, simply exemplifying what Matthias Shaban argued about mm -hmm. the nature of Christ's sacrifice, about the primacy of what he called the Latroitic dimension, that is, nice. that self-donation dimension um, that comes first, and then the atonement element, of course, follows. Gary, we could continue this for hours. This has been a riveting conversation. Thank you for joining us. I've uh, been talking to Gary Anderson, Professor Dr. Gary Anderson, Hesburgh Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, uh, author of many books, and this article, How to Read the Old Testament Theologically, The Case of the Atonement. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon.